mention, mention So strap on in because we're talking about the mention I'm Sam Wilson. I'm Zach Schneider. And I'm Liz Tory. Nerd Shit is the podcast where we talk about all your favorite nerdy movies and series. And do deep dive, spoiler heavy discussions on them. We're going to talk about all the things that make them work. And all the things that make them suck. We're also going to handle disagreements in a respectful, non-toxic way. All the while taking everything with a healthy dose of humor. After all, it's just entertainment. Everything doesn't have to be so serious. What operating system do you think Shuri from Black Panther uses? Is is really the question. She is definitely a Linux user uh, in the sense that it's complicated, elegant when it works out, and she is very smug about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, PC gives me Forrest Whitaker eyes, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was how he got that eye, is because he got a migraine from having to use a PC. <laughs> like, you know, the other thing that pisses me off about PC is, I think Windows 7 was the worst about this, where I would literally be in the middle of playing a game, and it would kick me out of the game to, like, automatically install an update. Oh my god. Like, oh my god. That's, or when it <laughs> automatically installs updates whenever I reboot the computer, it's like, ask me yes or no if I want you to do this. Don't fucking take 20 minutes to install a new update that I didn't ask you to fucking install like mac never does that it always like to be fair the P- my pc is not done that pretty much ever but no that was definitely an issue around windows 7 okay but i do agree if shuri is anything she's a linux user but she also probably that makes invented sense. her own os we'll, we'll be honest she but, did yeah yeah <laughs> but we are going to be talking about black panther today uh this is the 2018 mcu film black panther and this is going to be a full deep dive spoiler heavy discussion on black panther so if somehow you haven't seen this movie I don't know anyone who hasn't seen this fucking movie. This movie smashed box office records left and right, so... But Mm -hmm. you've been warned, uh, go watch Black Panther and then come back and listen to this podcast. The movie starts with expositional narration, which, you know, last week we just talked about the uh, M. Night Shyamalan last airbender (laughs) movie, Mm -hmm. which also starts with expositional narration. But I was saying that that narration would have been more interesting if they had exciting visuals to go along with it, which this movie does. And that's what makes it work. And that's what makes it not boring. (laughs) Yeah. Also, the exposition itself is a dialogue between two characters that serves as characterization for those characters when you find out who they are later. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just better exposition in every single way. They bring us into the story with the animation and with the and with the exposition. It's the perfect way to tell it. And all throughout this film, even the goddamn credits at the end, everything is so beautifully done and is exact. You know, so this exposition definitely works. No, it completely does. And you're right, Zach, in that it does have the dual purpose of just dumping basic exposition on us. Well, not dumping too much. It just tells us the the bare minimum that we need to, like, understand the setting. But... It also does help to, you know, establish some of the characters, too. And, and that's what I, I think that's what's so, you know, brilliant about the way this movie is written is that 
movies like the these have to be exposition heavy, but the dialogue is so natural, even when the purpose of a scene is just to give us information as audience members. It does that. It accomplishes that in such an organic way throughout. Mm-hmm. And the, the dialogue is so natural. Nothing ever feels forced, in my opinion, in this movie. Like, I don't, I don't know if anything comes up where you guys do, but like, I, I don't think anything in this movie feels forced. And it starts off with with this intro, you know, and we we very organically segue from that into the first flashback, you know, the first part of the scene that that gets completed later in Oakland, where, you know, we have uh, Sterling K. Brown's character, the father of Killmonger, and we have the young version of Forrest Whitaker's character, Zuri, and King T'Chaka, who I... I had forgotten this. I don't know if I actually ever knew this or not. The young T'Chaka is actually played by the son of the actor who plays the older T'Chaka, which I thought was also pretty great. Immediately starting us off by telling us about this utopian society of Wakanda and then hard-cutting to Oakland, California in the 90s, I thought was a really brilliant and great way to start the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, it very quickly introduces us to the heart of the themes of the movie, that, you know, Wakanda is this amazing, wonderful place that has kind of turned its back on much of the world, including places that really need it. And this is a recurring thing throughout the film, but I really love how much it points out. It's like, yes, the U.S. definitely could use help, too, because we are not looking after our own. Oh, and that's kind of, you know, the brilliance of getting Ryan Googler to write and direct this movie. This is the guy that made the movie Fruitvale Station, which was Mm -hmm. very much a protest film. You know, he made the Creed movies. This is a, a filmmaker who... I, I hate to say this, but I, I don't think that this movie would be what it was if, if a white director had had made it. I really don't, because yeah. like there's there's something about I'm not saying that you have to be so and so ethnicity to tell stories about so and so ethnicity, but in this case, like it's so tied with like this idea of what people maybe want and wish that like a black society could be while also really shining a light on what black society is, especially in this country and in other places in the world too. It's like Ryan Coogler is honestly one of the best like modern filmmakers um, of, of, you know, that like, like the 2010s going into the 2020s. Like I love Creed and like, I really want to see him step out. Like I love the Black Panther movies, but I want to see him step outside of these and, and do something else original too. Cause I, I think that he's such an interesting filmmaker and I think this movie wouldn't be half of what it is if it weren't for him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, apparently he's doing a, a secret movie with Michael B. Jordan. So they're going to be working together again. I absolutely do think this could not have been told through a white director. I, I do believe that. I, I'm not, I'm like you, Sam. I'm not saying that you can't tell stories about other cultures. I, I agree with that. You, you absolutely can. But if you tell a story about other cultures, you have to have experts. You have to have people from that culture tell you the way that it should be done. I think he nailed this fucking movie. He walked this thin line between peaceful protest and, ooh, that's a step too far. I really do think that part of his focus for this film was that. The whole idea of why hasn't Wakanda gotten involved versus Wakanda saying, we don't know how to get involved. 
is a fascinating argument that they have been able to argue through all of the Black Panther storylines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And it, that, that does go in, into this thing of like when we know that horrible things are happening elsewhere in the world, but... I would say we're too busy dealing with our own problems to deal with them. But the fact is, yeah. we're not really dealing with our own problems either. Nope. And right. it, it, it is one of those things of like us as individuals feel this kind of hopelessness of like, you know, well, well what can we do about it? What can you and I do about it? Yeah. And after a certain point, you know, like not, not not to get on the revolution train, but at some point we do have to kind of band together. But the problem is, is that there's just so many, you know, dissenting voices and different opinions. And like, I might be going off on a tangent, like, like as far as like what, how this relates to, to this specific movie. But mm-hmm. I like the idea that we have this society in Wakanda who on the surface does seem to be this utopia. But like anywhere else, there's still dissenting opinions even within Wakanda. The fact that M'Baku's tribe, the Jabari, like they're off. Like, you know, we have the, with this one of the five tribes is just kind of off on their own and like not really getting along with, with, with everybody else. And Mm -hmm. it's this feeling of like, it might be excuses that the Wakandans tell themselves of like, how can we like help the rest of the world when like all of our people aren't even really united under one banner or whatever. But it's also like, you know, we're trying to look after our own. But after a certain point, when does that excuse just... It's still an excuse. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And in the case of this movie, and side note, I don't know much about the comic version of this character of uh, M'Baku, but I absolutely love what it's done with him in this film and the entirety of the Jabari tribe. The issue with the Jabari tribe is the same issue. That feeling of isolation... Wakanda does not apparently interact much with the Jabari. They never, as he points out later, no king has ever bothered in centuries to head to the home of the Jabari to try and make overtours of peace or even just to invite them into their culture or see if they needed any help or ask help either. They haven't reached out because even though they're Wakandan, they allowed their fear and their isolationist tendencies to prevent them from even embracing people of their in their own country. It's the same tendency that prevented them from reaching out and helping other countries for so long. Yeah. No, I, I think that that's exactly right, because, like, as you said, like, the Jabari, they are a part of Wakanda. Like, if they weren't if they weren't a part of the country, then M'Baku shouldn't have even been allowed to challenge for the throne. But because he is of royal blood in his tribe, he was able to legitimately challenge for the throne. And that, just that by itself tells you that, yes, they are acknowledged as being a part of Wakanda, but they're not treated like they're a part of the same country. They're not treated mm-hmm. like they're the same culture at all. And it's one of those things where, you know, even within Wakanda, they're doing what people everywhere do, which is that they're letting their yes. differences bring them apart instead of let them bring them together. I think that our differences as cultures are what make us interesting. And I think if we Absolutely. had, you know, more exchange of those ideas, then, you know, we, we could probably solve a lot of our issues, which is kind of the point of the ending of this movie with sharing Wakanda with the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I think what really goes into that is Queen Ramonda's uh, reaction to the Jabari whenever they go and ask for help. They're not used to the Jabari culture. Even the vegetarian line 
uh, that Mbaka says she kind of flinches at and then, you know, she's kind of relieved when he says we're vegetarians. Well, yeah, but it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, like the, the Jabari are, again, they're part of their country and mm-hmm. they're, yes. under, they're everybody in Wakanda is under the same uh, royal family. But but they're treated like hillbillies. They're, they're treated like hillbillies, mm-hmm. and like the fucking queen mother of Wakanda doesn't know something that fucking basic about the the culture of one of their yeah. tribes. The fact that they're vegetarians. If that yeah. if that's the right. case, yeah. they should fucking know that about one of their tribes. They should. They should. It's like if all you know is that they're you know hillbillies that wander in every few years to challenge for the throne, and you never bothered to learn anything more. You're frankly not doing a great job as ruler. But to kind of defend the queen, I do have to say, if I was in front of M'Baku, I wouldn't be able to hear much of anything (laughs) just staring at Winston Duke and salivating all over myself. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Winston Duke is great in this because, like, he he really does ride that line between the posturing, you know, the acting intimidating, acting tough. Mm -hmm. But then he has these little moments of humor and these these moments of levity that you don't necessarily see coming with the way that the character is introduced in the film. But Mm -hmm. it really does humanize and it makes the character so much more likable and so much more interesting. There's a reason why M'Baku is a character that they keep bringing back for, for these you know future movies too. Absolutely. The first five times, I didn't know his name was M'Baku. I thought it was just Baku. I thought everybody was just like, mm, M'Baku. <laughs> can, I, can I say something? The dialect work in this film across the board is oh fucking my God. amazing. God, it's amazing. However, yes. there is something that I think both Denai Guerrera and Angela Bassett do. And I don't know if this is a thing about the, the Wakandan accent, which I, I know is, is based on the real life accent of uh, John Connie, who who plays uh, uh, T'Chaka. But whenever they say the word country, they kind of swallow the re. It don't. <laughs> and it sounds like they're saying something different. I noticed that. I only noticed that on this watch. It's like, OK, I think you should say the re part of that just a little more. Like... <laughs> Because that doesn't sound like what you're saying. (laughs) Well, cunt does come from a word that means home. So, you know. Well, I I guess etymology wise, I guess that makes sense. (laughs) Wakanda, which picked up some very unusual linguistic ticks from Australia for some reason. No one knows why. I think it's like Sanskrit that, and it means home or something like that, but you know. I think that a lot of what we're talking about kind of speaks to what's interesting about Wakanda in this film, like Mm -hmm. how fully realized of a fictional country it is in this film, but the fact that it is idyllic, the fact that there are ways in which it is utopian, but at the same time is also very deeply flawed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like every country. Honestly... As much as uh, the, I think the, the movie in some ways celebrates this aspect of Wakanda, like, I can't help but think about the fact that, like, look, this is a theoretically, certainly much more technically advanced and, like, you know, on paper more civilized uh, country than a lot of others. But at the same time, they still have a hereditary-based monarchy that you can literally just throw for, through a loop by throwing the, the new king off of a fucking yeah. cliff. And yeah. the reason that's <laughs> bullshit is because eventually you're going 
to get somebody like Killmonger, who's a fucking psychopath. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things like, I'm sorry. Yeah, there's a lot more to leadership than, hey, I was able to beat the shit out of this guy. It's like, so what? Any roid rage asshole at the gym is, you know, able to suddenly become president? Exactly. Like, uh... I'm, in general, not a fan of hereditary-based monarchies because you oh, always no. ultimately get really spoiled fucking, you know, princes who, who be- Joffreys mm-hmm. and shit like that. But I get the idea that, it, I think the idea in Black Panther is that this culture, there's a taut sense of nobility and responsibility that's passed yeah. down from parent to child. But at some point mm. that, like, you're going to end up with a Joffrey eventually. You are. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, I mean, listen, democracy isn't perfect either, but I definitely believe in demo- in actual true democracy as a way yes. of electing leaders. Mm. I say true democracy because I'm, I'm not saying, like, hey, look at these two fucking 80-year-old white men who are both fucking senile unless yeah. I'm not... <laughs> not not to make any kind of uh you know comments about a- uh, anything in particular. Don't take it back. It's true. But, it's yeah. true. But it's one of those things. It's like, is this really a choice? Like, is yeah. this really a yeah. choice? You know, and, and that that that's the problem when you know you have like mm-hmm. su- such a big population. Is like, how do you like actually narrow it down to a handful of candidates that are actually good candidates and who mm-hmm. are actually who the people actually want? But again, when it's like you know, in in like the, the the kind of democracy that exists in not just the U.S. but but other you know certain countries or whatever. It's like how much actual sway do we as individuals have, other than having to be basically being forced to vote between these two people? Because right. yeah, it's it is frankly, ridiculous. If we go third party, then we w- risk like fucking asshole getting elected. So it's like yeah, yeah. a traitor. And that's yeah, that's a totally valid issue. And even. Even in the best case scenario, which is you get someone like T'Challa on the throne who is strong and noble and kind and wise and has a very deep sense of morality. He's the king. He has to deal with the day-to-day running of the country, but he's also literally a warrior king who will frequently go off on missions that have nothing to do with the day-to-day running of the country, leaving nobody in charge. Um, there's not ever anyone listed as like a regent or anyone who stays behind. So yeah, it is a beautiful country, but yeah, there's some obvious flaws. Like again, having the premier warrior and mascot of your country also be the person who's supposed to be running this thing day to day. Now, also, it's important to note that he doesn't run the country by himself. He has the council, you know, Mm -hmm. he has all of these leaders from all these different parts. I don't know why M'Baku isn't there more as part of the council, because it seems like everybody has their own area. It's like the Senate. It sounds like they never invite him. Well, it does sound like they never invite him. I think that that's something that gets corrected after this movie, because after this movie, we actually do see M'Baku on the council. But it's because, you know, the Jabari, they are they are the black sheep of the tribes of Wakanda. And it's one of those Mm -hmm. things where it's a combination of he never gets invited and he like he doesn't want to show up because he ju- he's just kind of yeah. fed up like i think he's just fed up with wakanda and the wakandan royal family and that's why the only time he ever bothers to show up to anything is when it's time to challenge for the king because yeah. i don't blame him for wanting to take this fucking thing over to be honest like you oh, know yeah. I, I know that we're no i get it we're supposed to be rooting for t'challa and i do root for t'challa because i love t'challa i think yeah. he's a great character and i and i think that he is 
but certainly by the end of this movie, he is a much better leader for Wakanda than, frankly, any of his forefathers. Like, I'll be honest, he is. To be honest, and this is my, this is my opinion. But to be honest, it's very rare for a warrior to have the mindset and the larger world view of a leader. Mm-hmm. Usually warriors have the mindset of being offensive and aggressive and that that total battle mindset. You know, they have to pay attention to that. They have to understand that they don't make great kings, but it happens. But there's mm-hmm. a great line in this movie when T'Challa meets his father on the ancestral plane. And his father says, look, you're a good man, and it's hard for a good man to be king. Yeah. I think that in hindsight, I think that T'Chaka, in that case, whether we think that was actually T'Chaka's spirit or a part of T'Challa's psyche in terms of like how well he knows, because T'Challa knows his father and he knows what his father would say. So in some ways, I think it doesn't really matter which it was, but. I think that it's almost this idea of T'Chaka is kind of taking your stance, Liz, but like in the opposite is like, oh, the the warrior king is what you need. You need to be offensive. You need to be going out. Yeah. And I think Mm T'Challa isn't that. He is a warrior. I view him as less of a warrior and more of a defender, especially by the end of this, this movie. And T'Challa is a scholar. He is. Mm-hmm. And and I think that he even like learned some lessons, you know, about not taking vengeance in, in the, the previous movie he yeah. was in Civil War II. And like I, I think that I think he is a better king than his father was because even though he's obviously not afraid to to get into a fight and, and be the warrior when he needs to be, that's not really who he is at his core. I don't think that he is no. a warrior at his core. I think Killmonger is a warrior at his core. And that's what yes. that's what happens when you get a warrior in charge is you get a fucking it's a fine line. Yes. Yep. A man who has only ever solved problems with violence through his life is suddenly asked to run a country and surprise, surprise, his solution is violence. Yeah. Exactly. Who would have seen that coming? I got to say, though, Killmonger is one of the saddest archetypes that you've ever seen because he only chooses violence because that's all he's ever known. Mm-hmm. In the end, he chooses death over over what he calls bondage. It breaks my heart every time I hear him say that line at the end and he pulls that spear out. But at the same time, it triggers me going, I'll take bondage over death. I'll, I can escape later. I'll take bondage. But I understand where he's coming from. The comedian in me comes in and tries to sh- shelter me from having to cry at that line. But it just breaks my heart every time I see this movie. No, it really does. The line that gets me every single time is right before it. When he's talking about, when he's talking with, you just got stabbed. He's talking to T'Challa about the sunsets. And he says, can you imagine that? A kid from Oakland believing in fairy tales. And something yeah. about that line is just so hopeless and disturbingly more than a little true that it hurts every single time he says it. Yeah. No, it's such an emotional death scene. And it, it is one of those things where Killmonger is one of the best villains of the entire MCU because he is completely a villain, but he's also completely right. And what he's saying is right. The way he's going about it is what makes him a villain. (laughs) That's really what it is. That's what makes you go, whoa, whoa. That's really what it is. But here's the thing. There are so many villains in these types of movies that have these arguments that sort of have a point. And the hero is always like, hmm, you know, that bad guy really had a point. Maybe I'll have to really think about that. (laughs) 
well, let's move on and operate the way I've been operating this entire right. time. The thing that makes this <laughs> yes. movie work so well is T'Challa actually is really deeply shaken and actually changes yes. as a result mm-hmm. of, of what he learned from Killmonger. He's like, the villain had a point, he was right. And so instead of sitting on that and thinking, hmm, well, maybe if I just should do things as they always were, you know, we'll do it slightly better. It's like, no, actually, we do need to fundamentally change how we handle everything and we got to shake up the status quo. He was right. And the moment that I love is, again, it's the second time we see T'Challa in the ancestral plane when he's being revived after they find him in the Jabari tribe. Mm -hmm. And he confronts his father and his other ancestors, you know, says like, why, why did you leave that boy? You could have taken the boy with you. And, you know, T'Chaka gives him some bullshit about, you know, we have to, we have to protect Wakanda. I chose Wakanda. To me, one of the most powerful moments in the movie is T'Challa completely rejecting yes. the, the, the quote-unquote wisdom of his father and his mm-hmm. ancestors and saying, no, you were wrong. All of you were wrong. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. that's such a subversion of tropes. It really is. It, it because, is. Because, like, I mean... Listen, I, I love The Lion King. The Lion King is one of my favorite movies of all time, and this is not a criticism of The Lion King at all. But, like, you know, Mufasa is the wise father. He's always going to be right. It's like Mufasa's face appears to Simba in the clouds, and he tells Simba exactly what he needs to hear. This is such a powerful subversion of that, because there's a version of this movie it that is. you could have totally had, again, the Mufasa in the cloud scene. It's like, this is Simba telling Mufasa, no, fuck you. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, maybe yeah. we should have treated Scar better. You know, like yeah, I'm yeah. not I'm not rewriting Lion King and saying that's how Lion King should have been, yeah. but like it, it's it's such a I'm just using that as an example of the types yeah. of the type of writing mm-hmm. and the types of tropes that this movie subverts mm-hmm. so well, in my opinion. I think what makes the ancestral plane so well done is in all of the movies. You can argue if it's psychological or if it's an actual physical plane because none of the characters are told anything new that they didn't know. Mm-hmm. All of the characters are told what they know deep in their psyche. But at the same time, they still could have traveled because we know of the multiverse. Mm-hmm. We know of these different planes in, in Marvel. And I I find it so fascinating to where, and, and I think it's the best writing when you can argue whether it's physical or whether it's it's psychological and both be right no matter what you choose. And... Even more importantly, whichever it is, if this is an actual journey to the ancestral plane or a journey deep into the psyche, the journey is still important for these characters to make. No, completely. And I, I, I agree that it could be either one. I agree that it doesn't matter. And I agree that I prefer not knowing. I actually prefer not knowing. Me too. I think it's more interesting. The Moon Knight show does state that the Wakandan afterlife is a true is an actual afterlife. So that does yeah. seem to mm. provide evidence that maybe this is truly the, the ancestral plane, but if we take the Black Panther really both Black Panther movies on their own, you're right, Liz. It could be either one, and I've always preferred not knowing. I've always preferred yeah, not having that be answered. Yeah. You know, even as the MCU does get more mystical and we do get into like Egyptian mythology with Moon Knight and the Thor thing is a little bit weird because I feel like the first couple Thor movies kind of establishes like, okay, they're just aliens with advanced technology. And then I feel like, yeah. frankly, when Taika Waititi took over, I think they kind of embraced the 
idea that they are actually Norse gods more. And so they, they've kind of been a little yeah. wishy-washy on that, in my opinion. It's like, they are just aliens with advanced technology and also magic. They do have real magic, too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as the MCU goes on, it is embracing the magical and the mystical a lot more. It is. Uh, as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, like, like I think originally the they were trying to sort of keep it within the DNA of Iron Man, which is the movie that started also. Like, everything yes. that happens has to have sort of a sci-fi bent to it, but then when they did start doing movies like Doctor Strange, we started getting into a more mystical part of it, and I, I think that the progression of the MCU is actually pretty smart in that regard of, like, start us off more grounded and then slowly go more and more into the mystical. This movie is pretty much sci-fi, like, it is te- technological, yeah. and I, I like that the, the fantasy elements of it are ambiguous as far as whether it is true fantasy or not. So I, I agree with that, you know, that it could be psychological the heart-shaped orb itself could have a psychotropic effect of some kind that mm-hmm. just lets you, yeah. you know, confront the parts of your subconscious that maybe it's a little bit harder to, you know, access just in, in your conscious mind because we do put blocks around certain parts of our mind and things like that. One thing I really like about T'Challa as a character is, like, we, we've talked before about how a lot of MCU superheroes are very quippy. I like that T'Challa is, like, the anti-quip character. Yeah. Every time yes. there's, like, an opportunity for him to quip, he just makes, like, an exasperated sigh. People keep setting him up for it. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> no, I am not engaging. <laughs> <laughs> And it's not that he's not a funny character, because he is funny. He is. He does have a sense of humor. It's just not in that Joss Whedon-esque quip style. It is very much his own distinct sense of humor and style. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about Chadwick Boseman for a second. I mean, this they, they could not have cast this character more perfectly. Like, he commits mm-hmm. so hard to this character and, and brings so much dimension to it. So he's one of those actors actors who like everything's in the eyes everything's behind the eyes like mm-hmm. you could just see the wheels turning you could see the thought processes going yes. on in his head mm-hmm. even when he's not actively speaking he's always listening he's always thinking he's always processing yeah. and mm-hmm. compared to some other mcu characters like you know like tony stark or peter parker like he is more understated than those characters but he works just as well as as a protagonist for this film oh yeah it's one of the reasons that he's so easily sold as this uh, warrior philosopher is that yeah you can believe this is a man who is just constantly thinking about the ramifications of his actions while still you know not being afraid to take those actions in the first place even if they do end up shaking things up of course, you you have the the Q archetype, the James Bond Q archetype in Shuri, who I think uh, provides a lot of the comic relief uh, for this movie, and she she was a complete standout for me uh, when when I came away from yes. this movie because like I I didn't even really know about the character. I don't think she was really included in a lot of the marketing for this movie, so like I, I didn't even like know that this character was going to be a thing. And then she honestly kind of steals the entire movie. She does. Watching it again, I know I said, I don't know how many times that the next um, Black Panther had to be Shirley. Watching this again, that's all I kept saying every time she was on on screen. She steals the show. She's amazing. She's the new Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, she really is. She's, she's got everything. The sass, the genius. Yeah. No, she the does. The incredible <laughs> sense of style. Yes. I love that her lab 
has elements that you'd expect from a fantasy sci-fi lab, you know, large open space, mm-hmm. holograms. But it also has music going on in the background. It has a brightly decorated mural on the wall. All of her yeah. creations have a sense that she literally made two Black Panther suits, one that she knew T'Challa would pick and the one that is just entirely blinged out, presumably just because she wanted to have that one. Yeah. <laughs> just to have fun. Just to have fun. I love that it became the villain suit. Hmm. Yeah, it's tough, like, because when you have these two literally black cat suits, it would have been easy to run into, like, frankly, like, the Venom problem. I'm talking about the, the first Venom movie, where you have, like, a, a black symbiote fighting a very dark gray symbiote, where it's like, who the fuck is who? I think the, <laughs> the gold highlights on Killmonger's suit are enough to make it distinctive enough to, to uh, help yeah. it to stand out so you can tell who's who in that fight. Final fight. I still have some visual issues with the final fight, but I'll, I'll I'll come back to that as as we get to that. That aspect was was pretty well done. I felt they even changed the mask a little bit too for him with the gold on it, and I think that works. Mm-hmm. The gold highlights in the body, I think, are mainly what help it because like the face being a little bit different doesn't help as much with the white shots. But yeah. there, there's there's enough with the gold highlights and in, in the the overall suit, and then like when T'Challa's suit is building up kinetic energy and it has that purple going on that also helps to help his suit stand out too so again it's always difficult when you have a villain who's basically just the bad version of the hero even in terms of the suit design which happens frankly a lot in the mcu but yeah it's not the most distinct example of it but it's better than the venom example which is why there's even like other examples of like you know suits that are way too similar looking Mm -hmm. yeah and for the rare ship example you have uh What's name? Star Trek Into Darkness, which has the from certain angles, like intentionally so for the trailers. I think that was almost entirely done for the trailers. You have the enemy ship from a distance look just like the Enterprise. It's like, well, that's not confusing yeah. at all. <laughs> yeah. But when you they're both in the same shot, the enemy ship is so much fucking bigger that it's pretty easy. And like that, that's also the, the case with that's Iron true. Man versus Ironmonger. Is like yeah, that helps with Ironmonger. It's like yeah. okay, that one's like three stories tall, and that one's guy sized. So yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, j- just because of the sheer scale of it, I never had a problem with the, the Star Trek Into Darkness example in the context of the actual movie, but... Yeah. Of course, you know, it never hurts to cast Angela Bassett in your movie. I would just say that. <laughs> I mean, that's all. it's always going to be a point in your favor. If you, if you can have Angela Bassett play a complex, interesting, forceful character, yeah, it's always a good idea if you can get her. I would like to point out that y'all pronounced her name wrong. It's Angela fucking Bassett. <laughs> You're right. You're right. My apologies. <laughs> She's fucking phenomenal. She is a powerhouse. I mean, from American Horror Story all the way through the 90s and the 80s. She's fucking phenomenal. No, she is. Like, and she has enough to do in this movie to leave an impression. It, not to jump ahead, but Black Panther Wakanda Forever, the second one. That's the one where she really gets to shine. Oh. I think she mm-hmm. did, did she get an Oscar nomination? I think she did get an Oscar nomination for that she second did. one. She did. I hope so. Yeah. It's rare that like a Marvel movie gets like acting nominations. You know, there, there's several that have deserved it, but never really got it. But that was one that I was I was glad got one for sure. She's she's so mm-hmm. good in this, and and really does leave a, a really powerful impression in this movie. 
Honestly, Okoye, Janai Guerrero's character, I think is also totally scene stealing because like I was happy that she was in this movie because I'm a fan of The Walking Dead and I worked on that show and I don't know her well, but like from what I've seen of her, she's a really cool person and very, very talented. Like I love her as Michonne. Mm -hmm. So I was just happy that she was in this. She was honestly a bigger role in this than I was expecting her to be and she's fucking awesome in this movie. Also, oh, yeah, she's stealing. another powerhouse. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love the, um, he froze like an antelope in the headlights or something yeah. like that. Just the simple delivery of that line and seeing that sense of humor of the character come through. Even before that, like the very first what we get of her is like, all right, when you see her, don't freeze. And he said, no, what are you talking about? I never freeze. And just her expression when she's putting the spear back, uh-huh. it's like, yeah. mm, sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing full well she's going to have to get down there and stab people in just a few seconds. And it's just the fact that, you know, the, the first time he, like, you, you totally just see the moment where he freezes, where he just he just stares at Nakia for a second. It just says, hi. <laughs> you know, he doesn't do, like, the cool, quippy hero thing, like, oh, fancy running into no. you here. He's just like, yeah. hi. You know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> This is arguably the coolest man in the world, but not right now. Nope, he has yeah. no cool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the one thing I'll say about Okoye, and this is not even actually a criticism of the character herself, but m- more so just the, the, the way that they wrote some of the characters. It's like with Wakabi, who's Daniel Kaluuya's character, they have like a line that establishes that there's some kind of romance going on between Okoye and Wakabi, which never fucking matters to the movie at all. Like they don't even fucking share no. a scene together hardly they're mm-hmm. in group scenes together but we never see like their relationship and i yeah. think that they were just trying to create like personal stakes for okoye i guess when when wakabi ends up you know going over to killmonger's side but it wasn't effective because we just never really feel their relationship you know the actors mm-hmm. do the best job they can but there's just nothing there in in the scenes that they have i feel it was also an unnecessary wrinkle for okoye because frankly her sheer devotion to her role as general her duty to the throne as an institution versus her personal convictions is already a fascinating well done inner conflict for her that drives much much of her actions and it's like okay that's already a fantastic motivation we don't need the additional wrinkle i i have to disagree i have to push back i think that her having a normal life that's not as important for her She's more dedicated to her career. Mm-hmm. You know, her her being the general, she has a career in this, but she also has a home life and it's separate. And sometimes we are married to a person that we've been with for so long that we're not really interested in them anymore and something kind of breaks it apart. I think it's organic and realistic that she's this amazing character, mm-hmm. but she also has this more complex at-home life that's not... That's not too much. We don't need the lovey-dovey or anything like that. I don't think they're that type of couple. I do love the whole stopping thing of the rhino to give her kisses like a puppy dog. I'm not going to hit my mommy. That's my mommy. (laughs) I think it just creates this more complex character for both of them. That's fair. I hear where you're coming from. I just feel like if they were going to do that, then they should have developed it a bit more than they did. Even an additional scene. I get that argument. You know, I'm not also saying that they need to be lovey-dovey or whatever, but just seeing, like, I just don't get any sense of what their relationship Mm -hmm. really is with each other. And I think that it just feels so 
it feels so out of left field. Like even like mm-hmm. her saying like my love, like it that. just it feels very weak. It feels like a weak part of the movie. And yeah, I think it would have helped if we got at least a scene. Honestly, I think either choice would have been interesting. Either her letting the armor down for a second um, around her husband, you know, a more calm moment, or her not being able to let the armor down around her husband and that being a source of conflict. It's like, okay, the fact that she's always on, that she's always kind of the general, you know, that could also be an interesting flaw to explore. Yeah. I honestly just buy it all because I really love the line delivery of him talking about, are you really going to kill me? And she says, for Wakanda? Yeah. No, and I agree with that. I I just Mm -hmm. think that the moment wasn't earned as well as it could have been because it doesn't, the movie doesn't really develop them. Right. It felt like one wrinkle too many in an already really Mm -hmm. complex movie with a lot of characters. You know, like, honestly, Wakabi, Daniel Kaluuya is a phenomenal actor, and I think he's a little bit wasted in this movie. I'll be honest. I I kind of agree. I don't think he, they really gave him anything to do. He's just kind of there to be the token character who sides with the villain. And mm-hmm. yeah, they tried to add that relationship there with the Koye to introduce some kind of emotional stakes. For me personally, I actually think it backfired. I think that I mm-hmm. weirdly cared yeah. less because they were trying to shoehorn this thing. And I think that if the character had just been the character, you know, and they didn't try to do this thing with, with, with the Koye, then I, I think that it might have worked better for me in a way, but... Or if they're going to do that, if they're going to have that wrinkle be in there, then they need to devote more time to it. But at the same time, there's already so much going on in this movie that I feel like the movie doesn't have time for it. And I feel if the movie doesn't have time for it, then don't have it at all. That's my Mm, personal opinion. I don't feel that way, but I get that. I get that. I get why it works for you, Liz, too, but it just, it didn't work for me. Yeah, I get it. I think it's a valid argument. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we we touched on Nakia, you know, Lupita Nyong'o's character with with the way that T'Challa, you know, awkwardly reconnects with her. I like this character. Again, these MCU movies always have to have, like, the token love interest character. And, like, Nakia, I think... She doesn't, for me, leave the biggest impression of the characters in this movie, but I do think the movie is still better for her being in it, because I, yeah. I do like their chemistry, and I like I like the reasoning for why they're not a couple at the beginning. Like, it's not about them not having chemistry or not being compatible, it's just about what her life is versus what his life is, and it feels like, it, it felt very organic, but even them coming back together at the end felt felt organic in its own way, too. Yeah. I do find it kind of funny, and not in a bad way, just that at the end of the movie, it's like, early on, Nakia is trying to convince T'Challa that Wakanda could help out and reach out more, and at the end of the movie, it's like, and so I found out that my girlfriend was right the entire time. Just completely yes. right. <laughs> I am never living this down. <laughs> but really, I think that that's the true uh, need for the character of Nakia is not to be a love interest for T'Challa. I mean, they they, 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 they kind of yes. threw that in, yeah. you know, to round out T'Challa. And also because it, it does feel like there's just kind of a mandate for superhero movies to usually have love interests. But it's part it, of the it, formula. it is definitely mm-hmm. part of the formula. But the real, I think, utility of the character of Nakia is to be the advocate for that point of view of, yeah, there is a problem that Wakanda should be doing a lot more. And the answer is 
obviously not what Killmonger wants to do, which is just to take over the world, but we should be outreaching and we should be helping other people, you know, mm-hmm. not through the threat of violence, as, again, Killmonger wants to do, but, like, Nakia represents, okay, this is an advocate for the right way of doing things. And at the beginning of the movie, T'Challa, you know, is is so set in the way that he thinks Wakanda should be based on what he was taught. But by the end of the movie, of course, like, he, he actually learns from Killmonger, okay, like, we actually should be doing more, and, and he really... I think that when he learns to really listen to Nakia and acknowledge that she's right, that, that that's when the two of them actually can kind of come back together and be a couple, because... They're able to be equal partners in that mission of being able to help the world. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think Nakia is her own character, and she didn't need to be a love interest to be interesting. But yeah. I am glad that she is more complex and more well-written. And I hate to say this, I'm sorry, but better than uh, What's-Her-Face from uh, Iron Man. What's her name? Pepper Potts. Pepper Potts, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I wanted to call her Poppy. <laughs> But yeah, I, God damn it! But but I I do think that she is more well written, and that partnership thing is what makes me love this as a love story, mm-hmm. and not the one in Iron Man because it feels forced in Iron Man because she doesn't have her own voice until Iron Man three, mm-hmm. in my opinion, and that's valid. I've always liked Pepper because I I, I mm-hmm. think that she has always felt like. Uh, Chris, I, I say she's always felt like an equal partner. Like, I, I am looking at, like, the entire MCU, like, now that, you know, everything yeah. up through Endgame is over, because I think she did become much more of a partner for Tony as time went on. But mm, I, yeah. I can understand not liking her as much based on the first two Iron Man movies. I've always liked her because I, I always, mainly because I do feel that she's always been her own character, and she's always had her own shit going on, and is frequently right about a lot of things right. to Tony, but... <laughs> Again, you can go back and listen to our reviews of Iron Man 1 through 3 to for more pepper thoughts, pepper pots. <laughs> <laughs> pepper pots, not poppy pots. Yeah. <laughs> uh, pepper poppy pots, that's her middle name. I don't actually know the character's middle name. Do not take that as a... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a real Marvel fan. Just ask Poppy Potts. Yeah. I was going to ask you what Pepper Potts' first name is, but you're not even getting her nickname right, so... <laughs> uh, you know... Zach, do you know, do you know what Pepper I Potts' name is? I can never be is? one of those elite, elitist fans. Honestly, I did not know that she had a first name, so... I thought Pepper was her name. I haven't read Iron Man comics. I, I know, I'm a fake, uh, fake Marvel fan. I think they say it briefly in the movies. Patricia? Her name is Virginia. Virginia. Yeah, it's Virginia, okay. but Pepper's okay. a nickname. It's like, it's, like, it's oh, just okay. like, like, I think Iron Man 1 or 2, they do say, I don't know if they say it verbally, but you could definitely probably see it on like a, like a sheet of paper or like on a, like a computer yeah. screen or mm-hmm. something that is Virginia, quote, Pepper Potts. Yeah. How do you get Pepper out of Virginia? If you ask real nicely. I think it's just because... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's not Spicy. it's not based on her actual name, it's based on the fact that she's a redhead and her last name is Potts. Ah. It's in the, the fact that her last name is Potts and they just made a joke about okay. Pepper Potts, yeah. That makes sense, okay. Forrest Whitaker is also in this movie, which I tend to forget yes. when, I, when I come back to it. I, I honestly <laughs> tend to forget he's in this movie, to be honest. <laughs> His character also kind of serves as the exposition guy, 
but yeah. it's still Forrest Whitaker, and it, just like Angela Bassett, it never hurts to have Forrest Whitaker in your movie. Yeah, no, he's good. He's definitely good in the movie. It's just his character doesn't ever leave a huge impression on me. I like the guy that they cast as the young uh, version of his character because he just he just like I I totally buy that guy as young Forrest Whitaker. It's like it just it just works, you know. But oh, yeah. I mostly like with Forrest Whitaker's character that like it becomes that thing of when he's talking about what happened and they flash back to the young Zuri. It's that thing that the audience goes like, oh, that's the same guy from the beginning, you know. It's that thing. It's like ah, you know. <laughs> I like the way he plays the sheer guilt that Zuri has. Yes, he knows that frankly he shouldn't be alive at this point yeah that killing you know Njobu was wrong I like the way he plays it. I think I think he does feel guilt over ki- killing Nijobu, but I think leaving I think leaving Eric was always the thing that really stuck with him. I think leaving the kid, just mm. abandoning this kid and orphaning this kid, and not even not even telling them, not even telling him, not coming up with any kind of arrangements of I'm gonna help you find foster parents or whatever. Like they just literally fucking left this kid a complete orphan uh, in the street. Mm. That was what stuck with Zuri more than anything else was was the guilt of having orphaned this child. And yes, he does feel survivor's guilt over the fact that T'Chaka killed Nijobu in order to save Zuri. I think that that definitely stuck with him as, as survivor's guilt for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Forrest Whitaker is just one of them actors. I remember when I was a kid, I remember him in Species, and then that's when I started to really notice him in, in things. Uh, he was in Phenomenon, Ghost Dog, all of these crazy out there movies that I enjoyed. Those are my uh, Battlefield Earth. Those are my type of movies. And Forrest Whitaker has always had this acting style that just fits into all of those. I fucking love him. And the same thing in this movie. I am always stunned when he pops up on screen. I could read that he was in a movie. And when he pops up on the screen, I get silent and I'm just stunned every time. And I I hope to meet him in real life so that he can stun me in real life because I fucking love him. No matter who he plays, he's just a fun actor to watch. I'm sorry, I've got to be the asshole because like Forrest Whitaker overall is an amazing actor. I know. His performances lately have kind of been annoying me, I will say. I think it kind of goes uh, to what you're saying, Liz, that he, he does work well with those, like, ridiculous over-the-top movies, but he does. I feel like that acting style has just become his shtick lately. He's good in this. He is honestly good hmm. in this. But, yes. like, him and fucking Rogue One. Like, I, I've actually enjoyed Saul Guerrero when he's popped up in other things more so, but oh him and God. Rogue One, he is so just hammy and over-the-top in that movie. It just, I like, love it. Uh, I don't. I honestly don't. I, I don't like him in that movie. But There was a movie that he was in uh, that I just watched this past Christmas called Jingle Jangle. It was fucking awesome, and he's a toy maker in it. It's like the Nutcracker. It, but it's hammy. Yeah. It, it's all ham. I love his ham stuff. This performance in this movie is not hammy. It is. No, It I is agree. awe-inspiring. It is sad. It's a heartbreaking story. And then when he kills him, when he says, I'll take your life too, I'll take you both. I'm like, fuck! You know, because every time it's, it surprises me. And his performance is grounded in this movie, but I love when he gets to do what he likes to do. Yeah. He's just one of them actors. He, now, he is one of those actors, for me personally, when his 
performances feel a little more grounded in a real place. I actually do really like him. Like, like he is big in this movie. It's not a subtle performance he's giving, but it is grounded in a real place. And I think that that's what Mm -hmm. makes it work. You know, it's like, to me, his performance in Rogue One, it's like, it's not so much grounded as it is. He's like a fucking kite somewhere up in the sky. It's like, (laughs) where where the fuck are you? Then, like, you let go of the kite, it blows away in the wind. That, to me, is his performance in Rogue One. It's like, where are you going, dude? Dude, where are you going? So good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I like killer clowns from outer space, so I, you probably shouldn't trust yeah. my judgment. <laughs> I mean, talk about those uh, scenes in the ancestral plane. Like when Killmonger again takes the heart shaped dirt and he goes in the ancestral <laughs> oh. plane. That to me is also one of the most heart wrenching scenes in the movie. You know, you know we, we talked about his death scene, which also is, but like, I also want to give a huge shout out to Sterling K. Brown. Mm-hmm. This is an actor I'm becoming more yeah. and more aware of. Like, he was just in the, the movie American Fiction and was nominated for an Oscar for that movie, deservedly so. He is so fucking good in that. But his scenes in this movie as as, uh, as as Killmonger's dad, like in the beginning of the movie, and especially this scene in the ancestral plane, again, we don't know if this is actually his spirit or if it is a part of the character's psyche, of Killmonger's psyche that he's seeing his, his father. But, like, it doesn't matter because, like, you could tell that Sterling K. Brown is playing it completely like, I'm like, this is this is the character, you know? He's not trying to play a vision. Because you can't do that. Because, again, that there's no grounding to that performance. Not at all. Even if that is the character, e- even if that is the, the intent from a writing standpoint, he like he plays that scene just as real as any scene he's ever played and just the rawness of it of looking sadly at what his son has become and having his heart broken of like you know it seems like like look what i've done i should have brought you there years ago and now we're both lost like it, it just breaks my heart it's such a good scene yeah there's also something like it goes it goes back to that oakland line i mentioned where when t'challa goes to the ancestral plane he is surrounded by all of his ancestors, you know, his father, the wide plains of Wakanda, and when Killmonger goes to the ancestral plane, it's just that old apartment in Oakland with just his father, because he's so disconnected from the rest of his family, from the rest of his afterlife, that that is... Again, whether or not that's psychological or whether or not that's just how the afterlife actually works out, he still hasn't escaped that apartment, that mindset. Um, He's still there. It's a scary place. When T'Chaka kills his own brother, it's just... It's as horrifying as it is heartbreaking. And I can see how that's a trap for Killmonger. That's one of the reasons why I question the plane and why I really don't want to know the answer is because that apartment is where he goes. Mm-hmm. Completely. It breaks it my heart. It works either way because but that, that, that apartment is yeah. where Killmonger, from a psychological standpoint, would go. You know, that he's he's still... It's like hell. the fact that he sees himself as a child, like, like we revert to the kid actor, it's like he's still that kid in that apartment in his mind, in his subconscious. He's still that. He's still that scared, angry kid who is just already given up on the world. It makes me feel like it's it's hell from my 
mindset. It, it, it gives me the hellish thoughts of being trapped in hell, being trapped in that one situation. So, yeah. I know this is a bit of a tangent, but it is going to come back to this. There was a movie starring Robin Williams made uh, several years ago, What Dreams May Come. Yes. And there's a line from it that I think about constantly, which is that hell is not fire and brimstone. Hell is your life gone wrong. It's being trapped in the moments where all your life gone wrong. And that, yeah, I do definitely agree with that. That's what it feels like, being unable to yeah. escape just the moment where everything fell apart. Yeah. We've talked about Killmonger throughout this review, but like also Michael B. Jordan, his performance is so incredibly good in this movie. I was going to say, like, I, I know that this movie in 2018 got a, a Best Picture nomination at the Oscar. Like, there weren't any acting nominations for this. But, like, if, if I was to nominate one person for this movie, it would have been Michael B. Jordan uh, but for Best Supporting for best supporting Actor. I think that, honestly, that nomination would have been more deserved than the Best Picture nomination that the movie got, in my opinion. You know, and I... I used to be kind of upset that this movie got nominated for Best Picture, even though I like this movie. I just didn't necessarily think at the time it was deserving. I've since then kind of relaxed on it. It's like, you know what? It's like, if so many movies are going to get a, a slot, it's like, why not this one? Like, whatever, you know, yeah. but. You know, I really, I really hate, and I'm not saying you're doing this. But I really hate when people are anti-Marvel awards. I understand that it's one giant studio. But the work that these actors are putting in and these filmmakers are putting in is no less than what they are in these more cinematic movies. Although Black Panther is a completely cinematic movie. It is. It is a little different than the usual hero formula, superhero formula that Marvel goes with. And I think Black Panther, both of them, are just phenomenal. Phenomenal films. One thing that you're saying, Liz, that I actually completely agree with is the whole thing about uh, not being anti-Marvel movies and superhero movies being nominated for awards. Mm -hmm. I think that the, these movies, in many cases, should get more recognized for awards. I think at the time, in my opinion, at the time, I was like, of all the great fucking Marvel movies that have come out for the past decade, this is the one. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that this yeah. is a bad movie at all, like, but... No, I, I didn't get that. It's not one of the best MCU movies. It honestly isn't. Yeah. Frankly, I think Iron Man deserved it. I think Endgame, to be honest. I mean, not, not to jump ahead. I think that movie deserved a Best Picture nomination more than this Endgame one. Endgame was like, phenomenal. Like, I was glad that Into the Spider-Verse won for a Best Animated Feature, that was the same year that this movie. I think Into the Spider-Verse deserved a Best Picture nomination more than Black Panther did. Yeah, it, it I honestly can see that. did. And like animated movies are always overlooked for the for the like the big Oscar categories. But like again, it's one of those things where the reason I've relaxed about it is because at the end of the day, this is the movie that broke that seal. And mm -hmm. yeah, even though there haven't been a lot of superhero movies that have been nominated for, for these after the fact, like there, there have been some outliers. Like I, I know it's a very different kind of movie, but the fact that Joker got a best picture nomination the year that it came out, mm -hmm. that was a big deal. Like that was a big deal. The fact that a DC movie based on a Batman character was nominated for best picture. And I see you're rolling your eyes, Liz, but like, I think that movie, yeah. that movie completely deserved a, like a best picture nomination way more than this one, in my opinion. But. Do you not like Joker, Liz? I do like Joker. It's just, it's hard to watch. No, mm. it is. The mental illness that it takes on, it's it's but hard to watch. to be honest, the fact that it's hard to watch, I think, is what makes it a good movie. I'll be honest. Like, I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I just roll my eyes whenever I think about having to watch that movie, just because it's so in-depth. 
the second one, I'm looking forward to the sequel, but I know it's not going to be any easier to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, to, to roll it back, <laughs> I do think Michael B. Jordan could have gotten a nomination for this, but that was also, yeah. Yeah. He, and he I think he should have. And and also just talk about uh, playing against type because like he really was being brought up as like this big lead actor. It's like in, in a lot of movies, he gets cast as the hero. He's the likable, charismatic lead and casting that actor as this villain character who, again, is a very sympathetic villain, but is no- nothing less than a villain. He is absolutely a villain in this film. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. He is sympathetic, but he's sympathetic, but he's horrible. He's completely horrible yeah. in this movie. You know, 10 minutes before he dies, I'm screaming, kill that motherfucker, stab him, stab him, stab him. And then I'm like, now I'm crying. Fuck. It's one of those things where <laughs> if his life, his life should have turned out differently. He should have been yeah. given so many different opportunities. He didn't. And I like that T'Challa addresses that, is that you should have helped the boy. And now I'm going to have to stop the monster because that's what he is now. Yeah. And that's absolutely the case. He kills everyone who gets close to him on his way up. Like his uh, girlfriend, who we don't really know much about her, but we got the impression for like five minutes that they might have cared about each other at all. And he sheds absolutely no tears or even has a second's thought as he kills her to get through to just to shoot through her. No, he has no personal empathy. Broadly, he has a goal to try and help people, but it is also as much a goal to hurt people. Yeah, it's all very twisted inside for him. It's the perfect intro for him as a villain. No, it is. And speaking of villains, I do want to talk about Andy Serkis's Claw, who also was just yes. a stealing character. Just <laughs> again, I thought he was hilarious in Avengers: Age of Ultron. I thought he was even better in this movie. Mm-hmm. He had to die in order for the plot to progress. But I'm also really yeah. sad that we lost this great character because he really is a standout villain. Even though he is a secondary villain in both of the movies he's been in, he is still standout as a secondary villain. And just Andy Serkis is just so fucking good in this. Yes. He steals the show. He's another one of those powerhouses. He's a chameleon. Mm -hmm. But as his character, he owns that secondary villain, you know, and in his mind's eye, he is the primary villain until he's like, ah, fuck. I love the moment where he realizes, like, oh, I've been played this whole time. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's just magnetic the entire time he's on screen. And he's still hilarious, but also he is an unhinged monster. It's like, yeah, he's kind of casually racist. He does not care about anyone that he's around, and he will just murder people without a second's thought. I love the moment when uh, Martin Freeman's character makes the joke. It's like, oh, yeah, you guys are releasing a mixtape? Oh, yeah, we are. Hey, you got the, hey, send him the music. Yeah. It's like, oh, apparently. I'll yeah. send you a link to my SoundCloud. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so good. Like, apparently, he did actually make a mixtape at some point. Okay. <laughs> yeah, to me, it's when he ushers the one museum guard over and says, hey, hey, listen. I'll, I'll let you go. Just don't tell anybody, okay? And then the guy yes. runs away and he shoots him. Like, <laughs> It's like, this is a man who just deeply likes to fuck with people. (laughs) Yes, complete complete psychopath, but just such an entertaining character. It's like, again, nothing sympathetic or redeeming about the character at all. But he like, this is a good example of just a really entertaining flat villain. Mm, Yes, you know, absolutely. He has no complexity at all, but he's still fascinating to watch. 
Yeah, most of these action sequences are, are really entertaining, too. Like, that whole South Korea sequence, I think, is, is definitely a standout, you know, that, that uh, in the casino where they do the long, continuous take uh, of the fight that's, like, it's definitely stitched together from multiple different takes, and they're using, like, yes. CGI doubles to, like, you know, tr- transition and stuff like that. But it's incredibly well done and just a really cinematic, entertaining sequence, for sure. I completely agree. The battle in Wakanda, though... That scene, that action scene is so beautiful. I love that it starts off with T'Challa saying, we've got to finish this challenge. And Killmonger is like, oh, no, that's over. And then the the general doesn't get involved until the border tribe gets involved. And they're like, oh, goody, we get the fight. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice heightened sense of action. And it's well choreographed. And honestly, the moment when the Jabari um, joined the fight is just so... Yeah. I, you know, we mentioned earlier about uh, Winston. And just a shout out to Winston Duke again, who... He's in a scene where you have Chadwick Boseman and Angela Bassett, and you have to somehow have a character who looks more magnetic than either of them for this scene, and Winston Duke is perfect for that. But in this in this battle, just the moment when he picks up that guy and just throws him clear across is like, okay, yeah, I can see why everyone is impressed by the like. It's it's just a cool scene. It is the beats you guys are alluding to. I think are the highlights. Like I do actually love that dialogue between T'Challa and Killmonger at the beginning of like it's definitely that Rocky thing of like I didn't hear no bell. You know, like, yeah, that's fucking awesome. And yeah. Even though the Jabari coming in to save the day was definitely predictable, you know, when that that line of of him saying, oh, I'm not going to help you. Like, you you can kind of tell that this is the movie trope of he's saying that he won't and then he's actually going to come in. The moment itself where they show up does hit. I just feel like this ending battle just feel it's too much of a CGI fest. Like it's too green screen. Uh, I don't I, I don't I don't like the VFX in the third act. Like most of the VFX I think are pretty good in this. I think the VFX in the third act it's it's too green screeny. I have that problem a few times in this movie. It's like it's like even even like the the waterfall set where the uh inauguration happens and where the challenge happens. Like it just they don't feel like they're in a real place to me. And I feel that I way that. In, in that kind of grassland scene, too. It's like, they don't feel like they're in a real place to me. I think that that's what makes the scene not work as well for me. I kind of wish they had actually found, like, a, a location to shoot that, that, that sequence on. Because it feels to me like they're on a green screen when I watch it, you know? I love the Star Wars prequels, so this scene kind of made me cream because I like the green world. <laughs> even like and i complain about the green screen in the prequels too but i think even in the prequels i think it works better to me than it does in this movie for some reason like maybe it's just literally better implemented or maybe there's something about the star wars aesthetic that it's it's so obviously this otherworldly place uh and i think that's maybe why like maybe the guardians movies work better for me too because like when when we're essentially supposed to be on these alien planets i like things being weird and otherworldly but I could see that with Wakanda, like it is, it is this um, 
I understand the, the the idea that the the country itself is is maybe otherworldly compared to what we're used to. It's still this thing is like we're still on Earth though. Like, yeah. and I I would have liked it if maybe they actually like honestly you could tell that they didn't shoot any of this movie in Africa. You can. I would have liked it if they actually shot this in Africa. I'll I'll be honest. I think that that would have made. I think shooting on location would have made this movie feel more real. As I I know Eternals isn't like the best received movie by a lot of people. I happen to like Eternals, but one thing I really appreciate about Eternals is you could tell that they're actually shooting on real locations in that movie. And like the landscapes, I think are just gorgeous in that. And a lot of this movie just feels a little too manufactured, I think is kind of the issue that I have with it. Honestly, yeah, I do think it was a little too much of a CG screen, green screen fest. Weirdly enough, not so much the fight between uh, T'Challa and Killmonger. I thought that actually mostly worked. I think that for having two characters who look so similar to each other and having so much CG, it was actually pretty well done. There was something about the way that the wider field scene was shot that was very... It felt awkward, to put it mildly. And I do also find it kind of funny that they had to make up an excuse for Martin Freeman's character to do something in the finale. It's like, all right, we'll we'll give him a little something to do. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, we haven't touched on him yet, but Martin Freeman is actually a standout of this movie for me. I love his character in this movie. Like he, you know, I, I've said several characters are scene stealing, but like he's honestly one of my favorite characters in the movie. Like I really find him endearing. I like his arc in this movie. Like, because mm-hmm. he wasn't a character I expected to care about. And I think that that's what yeah. makes him work is that he kind of creeps up. I'm going to be honest, like, it's funny that you kind of presented Martin Freeman's part of the climax as being kind of an afterthought. I think of all the different uh, action parts of the climax, I think the Martin Freeman part of it was the part that I liked the most. Mm. I think him uh, remote controlling, you know, the plane to, like, take down the, the cargo jets or whatever, the cargo ships... And the additional wrinkle that there's another drone that's trying to, you know, that's in the process of, of destroying the, uh, the glass barrier that's protecting him and that he's literally putting himself in danger to defend Wakanda. I think that added like a sense of stakes that frankly, for me, a lot of the rest of the finale kind of didn't have, you know, I, I, like I felt more fear for him than I did for most of the other characters, partially because he is a character who feels like he could be on the chopping block. True. Yeah. That scene to me, it's funny that you kind of wrote, you know, wrote that offset because that was the highlight of the climax for me personally. I enjoy his part of the, of the finale, but I would like to know where to get anal beads like that so that I can have my own drone. (laughs) You know what you can do? with drones if you have anal beads like that i mean his life was saved by anal beads i mean it for chess matches apparently so you know (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i think you're absolutely right i think it is it is a highlight of the of the end scene and i i do love his character i look forward to his character whenever i see him he's fun he is genuinely one of my favorite characters in the movie because and i think a lot of it is because i wasn't expecting him to be you know like he shows up in civil war yeah he's, he's just there as a plot device or exposition bot but he's so endearing in this movie you know the fact that he really does throw himself into this cause that's not his cause but he but he just gets so won over by the characters is i i remember seeing this in the theater you know and i saw this in a completely packed theater back in 2018 and it was a very vocal audience but i i 
I actually enjoy being in theaters with vocal audiences when they're responding to the movie and not when they're just having sidebar conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I remember the moment where uh, Everett Ross volunteers to help them in the climax when he says, I'm in. And there was a verbal, you know, surprise response from the audience of nobody expected that. But like, I think that it was that pleasant surprise for everybody in the audience that, you know, we weren't expecting him to be a part of this whole movie. I thought he was just mm-hmm. going to be in the South Korea sequence, and then he goes through and is is in the entire movie, and in in some ways does become the the eyes of the audience. Who we end up experiencing Wakanda through his eyes, and I don't know. I just really really like his character. I, he really genuinely is one of my favorite parts of the movie in in a lot of ways. Yeah, he honestly was. Yeah, I could see that. stealing for me. See, I like him, and I do like how he's used in the movie. I'm. I'll be honest, I don't see the scene stealing thing. I thought that he was really good. I thought that he was really fun. I thought that he was well used in all of his scenes. I can't think of a single scene he was in that st- he stole. Yeah, I'll be honest, that's kind of surprising to me. I-, I think he was definitely on par with everybody that was in the scene. And I think he- his quips really made it. I-, I think he was a very earnest character, so I could see how he it would feel like he right. stole some of the scenes that he was in. That's the thing. He was he was so earnest and he was so endearing. And because, like, yeah. to me, the-, the main scene that he stole was when they're gearing up for the final fight and he volunteers yeah. to help. Like, that to me was right. absolutely the scene that he stole. And I also think he steals the entire climax because I'll be honest both the big field battle and I I actually don't like the Black Panther versus Killmonger fight either because that's also just like I'm just watching a cartoon like there is no live action part of this scene at all and I know there's a lot of CG in in the Everett Ross part of it too but I don't like the climax of this movie I'll just be honest I'll just be straight up but except for the Everett Ross part of it I think that that's the part I think he steals the climax I think that his part of it steals the climax for me too because that's That's the one that's the one part of it where I felt stakes and where I felt tension. I enjoy all of the CGI because I like to see them push the limits. I like to see them really, really kind of take on what we can do and try to push it just a little more. So that Killmonger and and uh, Black Panther scene at the end, I really enjoy it. I understand that this is a comic book movie and there are just going to be some things that human beings can't do. We can take their pictures and we can insert them into, into scenes that we want. For me, I, I'm a kid of the 80s and a lot of the practicals were just shit. I love practicals. I love mixing practicals and CGI. But what we can do with CGI in this day and age just really make me cream my pants <laughs> but see mixing practicals and cgi that's that's where the key is it also is just good cgi and well thought out cgi i'm sorry mm-hmm. but black panther versus killmonger are two guys in mostly identical black suits fighting in like a dark dimly lit background that's all fucking monochrome the, the problem is not even so much, like, I do think there's problems with the implementation of the CGI, but I think there's problems with just the way that that scene was conceived. Just from, like, an art design standpoint, I don't think it's good. I'll be honest. Like, there's not Fair enough. enough. Yeah. Like, this this is a really colorful movie, and so why is the fucking final climactic fight in the movie so monochrome? That's the problem I have with it. I get that argument. I think it's legit, but I, I enjoy it. It's a It's a moving comic book for me. 
Well, see, I and I, I, there's other movies in this same franchise that are CGI heavy where I feel that way. I just mm-hmm. don't. I don't think that the execution of this climax was good. I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah. I, the, mm-hmm. the, the climax is the big problem that I have with the movie. And again, the the one part of it that I like is that Everett Ross, Everett Ross part of it. I think the emotional stakes are completely there for that, and I actually feel tension as that 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 ship is like you know shooting into it. Like I don't feel that same tension for any of the other characters during the climax because I don't feel that they're in. I don't feel they're in valid enough peril to be honest for most of it. I gotta say, my favorite part of the climax is where the rhino is charging Mbaku, and and it just stops and kisses her. I I love that. Oh yeah, part. the Koye, yeah. I don't, but a lot of that's because I also don't like the CGI for the rhinos. I think it's just not that good, too, but, you know. I love it. Yeah. They remind me of the CGI uh, animals from Jumanji. Which also shit. were shit. Those were yeah. shit. I'm <laughs> sorry. I love Jumanji. I don't know. I'm watching yeah. a movie, so I, I don't I mind. I like the practical ones. Like, I like, like, the crocodiles were practical. Those look good. But, like, when you have, like, yeah. that fucking stampede or, like, the monkeys, like, it looks awful. Like, it was impressive for the 90s when it came out. But when you watch that movie now, like, the CGI is terrible in that movie. They should not hold they up. They don't hold up, but. The Robin Williams Jumanji is a, I love that movie. I really do. Mm-hmm. I'm just pointing out the fact that the VFX don't hold up. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of movies I like where the VFX don't hold up you know oh yeah absolutely i do actually broadly agree with you that for the most part uh the climax it it doesn't really work with me there is a kind of lack of tension for a lot of the characters there's also something about the blocking the setting having this for the most part one battle be on a giant open kind of empty field and another fight being, you know, two near identical people slugging out in the darkness with no real contrast. Those are genuine issues. Um, and that's a lot of the climax. So I do, I do definitely get your arguments there. It's, yeah. there are a lot of fight scenes I really like in this movie. They're, there's really creative choreography. Just not in the climax. It is definitely weak. Action-wise, everything in South Korea is, is the highlight as far as the action goes. Everything, like the fight in the casino and then the car chase afterwards. Mm-hmm. All of that was great. And there's a lot of CGI in that car chase, but that worked better for me because it still felt a little more grounded in reality. The climax of this movie just doesn't feel grounded in any kind of reality. Again, I wish they had shot this movie on location. I really do, Mm. instead of just green screening everything. But I know that's what Marvel tends to do. Yeah, they spent $200 million on the movie. CGI is expensive. They had to do what they could do. (laughs) Yeah. And one issue that I do have a little bit with the final fight that, you know, it's it's difficult to get around this. Um, the fact the Black Panther suits themselves are so are presented in the film as being so damn near invulnerable. Mm-hmm. It makes it very hard to watch a protracted fight scene between two people wearing these suits and thinking that there's any point to what's going on. It's like. All right, so you punch him, he's not going to feel it. You scratch him, it's not going to go through the suit. Half of these moves are completely pointless. Yeah, it's definitely that typical superhero fight where you might as well be shoving two action figures together, you know? Like, to a certain degree, when they're really well done, I can enjoy fights like that. But at the same time, I I think that it's it's a lot of the the small problems of, of the tropes that, you know, Marvel movies tend to fall into that I think this climax for me is it starts to become kind of the, the worst examples of that. 
you know, again, like, the story of this movie is so good, and the aftermath of the climax is phenomenal. Again, that sunset scene with Killmonger's death is a heartbreaking scene, and as much as I rack on the climax, I'm not bored at any point in the climax. I'm still entertained right, by yeah. it. I'm still entertained by the visuals. I just don't Again, other than, than again that that Martin Freeman that Everett Ross scene with him and the, uh, controlling the drone and like maybe maybe you guys don't feel the same way, but that part I feel real tension for because I feel real stakes. I feel a, a counting a, a timer during that part that I wish I felt in the rest of this climax, you know. And I I just I just don't feel that for anybody else. And I I've harped on this already, but like I mm-hmm. I did feel nervous for him the first time I watched this because he really had won me over really strongly as a character. And I, I, I do think that I understand why he, he's not a standout for other people, but that character is a really strong standout for me in this movie. He honestly is. He's he's just he's so likable and so endearing for me in a way that you don't expect, you know. I mean you kinda expect it when they cast Martin Freeman in the role just because Martin Freeman is extremely I mean, likable and endearing. Sh- Sure, but the way that the character was set up in Civil War and even the like his first introduction in this movie, you don't expect the character to be that endearing. That's fair. Like he's there to be the CIA guy. Like he really didn't have to be involved in that climax and he chose to put his life in danger because he believed in this cause and he believes in doing the right thing. And I and I and I think Martin Freeman plays it so earnestly that that's why I find the character so endearing. It's not like, yeah, he's not the flashiest character. He's not the funniest character, although he does some have, have some good quips, too. But like, so, but he's, he's just stealthily, to me, one of the best characters of the movie. And, and I, I just I think he has a great arc, too. I think he has a really good arc, uh, uh, you know, in terms of like really giving a shit about the, the situation that he, he's, he's found himself in. I got to be honest, I think he's upstaged by the CGI rhino. Ah. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I do love the, these last few scenes of the movie, too. You know, we, we talked about Killmonger's death scene, but, you know, it's, it's, it's worth repeating again. It's one of the best scenes of the entire movie. But, like, I just love the scene in, in Oakland at the end with him, with T'Challa and Shuri. You know, he says, I bought that building and that building and that building over there, too. And then they, they revealed the quote, uh, hovercraft to the children and the one kid goes up to to T'Challa and says you know who are you and we just cut back to his reaction and we cut to the Kendrick Lamar song in the credits like it there's just something about the way it's executed it's like this does give me some chills you know it's a great uh ending scene for the movie you know before the actual credit scenes can I ask a question yeah Sure. Do you prefer the CGI in this movie or the CGI in The Monsters by Rob Zombie? Liz, you know full well I haven't seen the fucking (laughs) Monsters by Rob Zombie. (laughs) I know. Yeah. But no, I'm sorry. I'm actually gonna. I I, again, I haven't seen that movie, so I can't tell you how like well or how poorly it, it, it was executed. But I will say. CGI that is purposely stylized because everything I've seen with the monsters is 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 very stylized and not going for realism. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. VFX that are going for a certain stylized, purposely non-realistic look does tend to work a lot better than movies like this, which is we're trying to go for realism, but we're just not quite there. And the problem isn't budget. 
because the budget was enough that they should have been able to execute. The problem is, is that Marvel, to a notorious degree, overworks and rushes their VFX artists to unfair mm-hmm. levels, and they're just not able to deliver the, the, you know, as good a product as they could, given more time and more resources and you know better working conditions. And I think that when the CGI in these movies falls short, that's what I blame it on more so than budget. Hundred percent. Because, honestly, these are extremely talented VFX artists. They are! But, yeah, it is 100% knowing when and where the CGI is supposed to be most effectively used, when you can get away with doing practical, when you don't just say, ah, fuck it, we'll fix it in post and add another job for the already overworked VFX artists. And, again, take longer that's the thing it's like when they're announcing the release dates for these movies before these movies are even written a lot of times it's one of those things it's like look you've got to build more post-production into the schedules when you're planning these Mm -hmm. movies and if that means pushing a movie back six months then you push the movie back six months so that you actually give people the time to to properly execute yeah because honestly Every single movie that's made is an incredibly difficult mess of moving parts with lots of different people. But art is not a production line, and VFX is frankly art. It requires being able to take some rest, take some chances, and allow a little bit of creativity to flow, even though it does take a long time. And I think that Marvel and... For the most part, again, I like a lot of Marvel movies and I like a lot of, you know, what they're coming out with, but it is a genuine massive problem that they do not respect their VFX artists and they do not give them the time and the resources to do what they need to do. No, I I completely agree. And then, of course, we have the post-post-credit scene, which is uh, the the Bucky revealed to be recovering in Wakanda. The one-armed man! After the the, the Civil War scene, which... uh, Here's something I'll say that I really like about this movie, is that we obviously love the MCU on this podcast. We talk about the MCU a lot. And I like how interconnected it all is. And I like a lot of the movies that do require watching other movies. I like that this movie, you can watch completely on its own. Like, even the connections to Civil War, like, they succinctly say... T'Chaka died in a terrorist bombing. The guy was caught. Okay, we can move on from that. And even when we take this movie by itself, that can kind of play into the idea that the world is in a state of unrest, which does play into the storyline. This movie completely stands on its own. But one thing I do like about these Marvel post-credit scenes is they know that the Uber nerds are the ones that are staying in the theaters, so they could throw something in that's like more relevant to uh, to another movie than it is to this movie. And it still is relevant to this movie because the scene takes place in Wakanda and involves Shuri, but you know, it's just it's just an update on Bucky. You know, I, I feel more than yeah. anything else. Just a reminder that hey, he's not frozen, he's allowed to spend some time with goats. It's fine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have a problem with this in credit scene because he and Captain America should have been in that hut together, you know, doing some butt stuff and being goat farmers in Wakanda. That's that's how I feel. 
I mean, just because that is the objectively superior ending for their story, <laughs> you know, doesn't mean that they're willing to, you know, push that hard R rating to put in butt stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to see the butt stuff. All we have to do is hear Captain America go, oh, Bucky, and Bucky going, oh, Cappy. And then they come out buttoning up their pants. And they pet the goats. That's all I need. That's all I need. <laughs> God damn it. All right. Well, I think we're ready to go into our overall thoughts on a score of one out of 10. Zach, I'm going to let you start. Honestly, I have some mix. I'm just kidding. I do not. Uh, my, my thoughts are pretty clear on this movie. Honestly, I see why this got nominated for Best Picture. It brings us immediately into this fantastical world of Wakanda that's not perfect, but the moment when they first arrive and we get our look, first look at Wakanda, there's something that always grips me every time. Being able to navigate into this wonderful world, a, a country that should be, um, it often feels like, and seeing it as such a complex country, really a country with a lot of depth. It's practically a character in its own right, um, the yeah. setting where this takes place. There's a lot of powerhouse performances throughout this film, some really great action, and I love the overall story. I love that it doesn't take the normal route that superhero movies go and say, ah, yes, here's our defender to the status quo. It's okay, things actually genuinely need to change, and the entire film is addressing that, and is also kind of a call to real world to try and, you know, have some attempts to reach out, you know, across the aisle for everyone. I like that. The climax is a bit of a mess. Um, I'm definitely not going to deny that. But overall, I think this is a really strong movie. And it is absolutely a joy to watch every time. Um, this is a solid 8 out of 10 for me. Yeah, I pretty much agree. I mean, I I don't actually see why this movie was nominated for Best Picture, I'll be honest, but that's just me. I think it's a good movie. Like, I think that the messaging of the movie, I think, is better than the movie itself. But the movie itself, I, I will say this. This movie does sneak up on me on rewatch because I never really thought of it as being one of the better MCU movies, but when I go back to it and every time I go back to it, there are definitely things about this movie that that do sneak up on me. It is it is a, a, a much deeper and more interesting movie than maybe I even initially gave it credit for. You know, I, I think that it, initially I was maybe also just being a bit of an edgelord saying it's like, why the fuck did this fucking movie get nominated for Best Picture? And again, I'm totally a proponent for comic movies getting nominated for Best Picture. I just think that this one wasn't one of the ones that should have, I'll be honest, you know. But it is a really good movie. And even though he is the villain and he's very much the villain, I think Killmonger is actually the emotional heart of this movie. Most of the scenes that really affect me on an emotional level are do come from the Killmonger scenes. That scene with him uh, in the ancestral plane with, with, with his father played brilliantly by Sterling K. Brown. And especially that scene where he's dying, like that you you allude to it earlier in, in in the podcast, Liz. But to me, that scene bury me in the ocean with my ancestors who jumped from the ships because they knew that death is better than bondage. That is like the most powerful line in the entire movie to me. Uh, mm. That line never fails to affect me emotionally. 
And I, I think because of that, and, th- and there's so many scene-stealing characters. Shuri absolutely is a scene-stealing character. Everett Ross su- is the surprise sniper stealth stealing, scene-stealing character to me personally. And then, of course, just Chadwick Boseman's brilliant performance as, as T'Challa. I agree it's an 8 out of 10. And the, the main issues I have with this movie is, again, the Okoye, uh, Daniel Kaluuya's character. Those two characters' relationship, I think, was forced and unnecessary, and I do think there are problems with the climax. But I think the rest of the movie is is so good that it largely does overcome those flaws to a degree. So I I, I agree that it's an 8 out of 10. It's one of the perfect movies. I know a lot of people complain about the CGI in this film, but I really love that they pushed the edge of CGI in this. They really did. The movie is very complex. Each one of the characters has their own pros and cons and their own super objectives. And we feel for every one of the characters. Uh, Killmonger makes me scream, kill that motherfucker. And then five minutes later when they kill him, I am sobbing like a little baby. You know, it's it's a crazy movie. And I I I have to say it's one of the best Marvel movies, probably one of my top three favorites. Um, not going to lie. It gets me every time, every time I watch this movie. It just takes me down that emotional uh, one minute I'm laughing, the next minute I'm crying. And plus, I got to say, if my last moments on Earth were getting sugar from a rhino and then the rhino kills me with its horn, I would be okay with that. That's that's a bucket list of mine. I don't care if the rhino is not real in this. It's real enough for me. I got to give it a 10 out of 10. Nice. And, you know, I, I, I do think that how much of a cultural phenomenon this movie was when it came out really can't be overstated. And yeah. I think, to me... I'll be honest, and people might disagree with this. I don't think the movie was nominated for Best Picture because of how good of a movie it was. I think it was nominated because of how much of a cultural phenomenon it was. Yeah. It was kind of the Titanic of the year that came out. Because Titanic isn't the best movie ever, but it was an absolute cultural fucking phenomenon. And, like, it was the movie that everybody was talking about. And I'm not saying that movies should be nominated for awards because they're popular, but there's a certain level of, like, kind of cultural significance that can happen with certain movies where they, they kind of of overcome in some ways their own quality i think that happened with avatar you know to like when, with james cameron's avatar when it came out and i think that that's definitely the case with black panther like as much as i complain about you know certain aspects of the movie it is a great movie and, and I'm, I'm really thankful for this movie existing because you know let's face it you know the, the three of us in this, this podcast we are of the the light-skinned variety and like we've never had a hard yeah. time watching <laughs> movies in which we're represented on screen and i think that it is really important for everybody to be able to be represented on 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 screen in in these types of movies and for them to all be able to see themselves and i've grown to really embrace that of you know really getting to see movies about different cultures other than my own and different types of people other than people like me and i think because of that i do think that i think that the popularity and the significance of this movie culturally is completely earned even if i do have certain issues with the actual movie itself and again it's still a great movie yeah I would say I was really surprised uh, in the sequel that they took Mbaku and Nikoya and uh, let Jordan Peele direct the sequel us to this movie, you know, where they <laughs> had those doubles. It was scary. It was scary. I didn't expect it to be as it scary as it was. It was definitely a really mm-hmm. different 
and, and slightly head scratching direction for the franchise. Um, right. I'm still trying to connect certain dots, but uh, I probably just maybe I, I might just be too. I just didn't get it. Yeah, yeah, I think I think Liz, I think we're just too stupid to really understand the, the connections. I think but. you're right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking the last several weeks about Avatar The Last Airbender in the lead up to the Avatar The Last Airbender Netflix show that recently just came out. We haven't got a chance to see it yet, but by the time we record next week, we will have gotten to see it. So I think that it is time to go ahead and instead of subjecting people to us talking about the M. Night Shamhammer movie, we actually talk about the live action Netflix version. We don't know if it's good yet. So uh, <laughs> maybe it's going to be even worse than the Shabbat version, but I'm looking forward to this version of, of Uncle Ira. I am too. I think it's a really good casting. Yeah. Yeah. If nothing else, I think just from what I've seen so far, the casting at least looks like it's on point. The only problem is that unfortunately, Daniel Day Kim is Ozai and therefore it's going to be extremely hard to focus anytime any of the Ozai scenes are on. It's like, <laughs> makes sense. All right. Uh... <laughs> you know, you know, if Ozai takes his shirt off he doesn't seem that bad yeah. I'm just saying I can't hear what he's saying technically everything you're doing is monstrous but also I'm very distracted I'm just disappointed that Asif Manvi did not reprise his role as uh, Admiral Zhao in, in he this he was such wow. perfect casting yeah. yes it was, it was really it was a really natural fit the way that he yeah, would just constantly yeah. uh, passive aggressively just insult people for the sake of exposition yeah. but yeah <laughs> Nerd Shit is edited by the three of us, as well as Sharon D. Wilson. Our music is composed by Sam Wilson. Hey, that's me! You can follow us on all social media platforms at The Nerd Shit Pod. That's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and X, all at The Nerd Shit Pod. Make sure that you're subscribed to Nerd Shit anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a review and a star rating. And tell all your friends about us like a nice cult. Spread us around like herpes. Nerd shit, nerd shit. So strap on in because we're talking about the nerd shit. Stay shitty, nerds.